stories, big guests, the big picture. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge. Weekdays 1230 to 3, 770 CHQR. Welcome back. Rob Breckenridge with you here in the Chorus Radio Network. So the debate around the notwithstanding clause is back, and, and this has come up many times uh, over the years. The uh, notwithstanding clause falls under Section 33 of the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. We call it the notwithstanding clause, often known as the override power. So it allows governments to essentially override certain sections of the Charter, Section 2 or Section 7 through 15. Now, there are a lot of different views on this, obviously, or, or two distinct sides in this conversation. One is that, you know, maybe a parliament, democratically elected government, should have the final say on some of these matters. The other side says, look, you know, constitution exists for a reason. It exists to provide parameters for elected governments. And if governments pass laws that step outside of those bounds, they need to be reined back in. But the notwithstanding clause essentially allows those governments to say, well, no, we don't have to. So does it belong in the charter? Does it belong in a society, a government like ours? So the reason why this has come up again, look, obviously Quebec has used the notwithstanding clause to try to protect the French language in Quebec. Alberta attempted to use it over 20 years ago on the same-sex marriage issue. Ontario recently threatened to use it uh, as they were looking to reduce the size of Toronto City Council. They ended up not doing so. But the Ontario government is now saying uh, that they are going to invoke the notwithstanding clause so as to restore parts of the Election Finances Act that had previously been declared unconstitutional. So joining us to talk a bit more about how we should view the notwithstanding clause, whether Section 33 of the Charter should be repealed. Very pleased to welcome uh, to the program here this afternoon, uh, Peter L. Biro. He is uh, founder of Section1.ca, Democracy and Civics uh, Education Advocacy Organization, editor of the book Constitutional Democracy Under Stress, A Time for Heroic Citizenship, and has a piece today in the National Post and nationalpost.com on the notwithstanding clause. Peter, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Oh, fantastic to be with you, Rob. Thank you. Right. So, I mean, it's a difficult issue because obviously we're talking about the charter and changing any part of the charter is is not easy. But why, in your view, does Section 33 need to go? Well, first of all, let me compliment you on the background that you gave to this thing, because it's hard to sum this entire thing up in a kind of nutshell the way you did. And you did a great job uh, setting it up. Also, uh, just before I sort of get to the heart of your question, you know, it occurs to me that, uh, that, you know, we brought home the Constitution. We patriated the Constitution. We put a charter entrenched in the Constitution. We negotiated an amending formula. We did all kinds of incredible things. And now we can't even talk about amending, you know, one little piece in the charter without people going crazy saying you can never do that. That's too difficult. You'll never get the requisite, you know, consent from the provinces, from the people, etc. It's quite remarkable how our you know, the, 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 uh, the extent of our ambition has really narrowed uh, over the last couple of generations. Uh, you know, to my mind, look, first of all, Section 33 should never have been there. And if, if, if Pierre Trudeau uh, had had his druthers, of course, it wouldn't have been there. Uh, it was there uh, because that was the price to be paid for getting the package done, the patriation package done. And as you'll recall, of course, it was your premier, Peter Lougheed, who was the one who actually 
you know, uh, came up with the with the with the first bit of resistance to a charter that did not include an override clause, and it was him along with Alan Blakeney, and then supported by uh, Sterling Lyon, who said, "Look, no deal without an override clause." Uh, and you know, the the, the reasons for it, uh, for, you know, for the opposition to uh, to a to a, a a notwithstanding clause free charter. Are always, you know, uh, advanced in, you know, in in the in the service of some kind of uh, argument for democracy. Like we can't let unelected, unaccountable elites, you know, judges, uh, you know, be the ultimate arbiters of of uh, you know whether policies and laws are going to be uh, legal or not. We've got to give that final word to uh to the legislatures and you know and on some level that sounds great and it appeals to our populist sense but ultimately uh you know my submission is it has no place whatsoever in a liberal constitutional democracy particularly one such as ours that already contains a section one section one of the charter actually says look rights can be limited they can be restricted and not just the ones in sections two to seven and fifteen but any rights can be limited if the government can demonstrate, you know, uh, that it's justified according to a certain test. It's called the Oaks test, and it's been evolved since then by the Supreme Court. But ultimately, the point is that the, the, the rights and freedoms contained in the Charter are not absolute, even without Section 33. So the question is, why would you ever allow a legislature to make the arbitrary decision that it will suspend the operation of the charter, however provisionally, right, without needing actually to justify it. That is to say, without needing to satisfy anybody that, you know, a certain rational uh, test has been met. What it does is it gives uh, it gives room for majorities to, to you know, to kind of uh, run roughshod over the interest of minorities. And, you know, that may sound fine. Uh, you know, we, we may say, well, that's just fine. I mean, that's what democracy is. Majorities get to decide. But as we know, Rob, majorities in all kinds of parts of the world, by the way, including in Canada, uh, throughout history have made decisions about what the law should be and about when rights should be suspended uh, in, you know, in circumstances and in, 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 in fashions that are you know, that history has clearly determined are absolutely unacceptable. Obviously, the most obvious case in the, in the, in the 20th century was, of course, the Holocaust and the Third Reich. And, you know, that was a case where major, a majority, you know, went along with what a government wanted to do. Uh, and it's just not good enough to say, as the supporters of Section 33 say, that, well, look, let the government use the override clause. It's only going to be in, the, in effect for five years. And if, and if the people don't like it, They'll, they'll toss out the government, you know, at the next election. But in the meantime, rights have been, uh, ha- have been infringed. Mm-hmm. There are people who have actually suffered uh, in the meantime. So it's just not enough for them to say, well, you suffer now. And if a majority of the electorate uh, is on your side, in, you know, when the next election comes around, we'll, we'll toss this government out. That's not that's not good enough for me, uh, and I don't think that's good enough for a mature constitutional democracy yeah. uh, of the stature of Canada. 
I mean, is, is it any solace or is it is it even a relevant point of this conversation to point to the fact that the notwithstanding clause, Section 33, has been infrequently invoked? Arguably, you could even describe it as rare. Well, you you raise a good point. And, and, and in fact, yes, that's correct. And what that does mean is that most governments uh, in this country, since the, the charter came into effect, uh, have been fairly reasonable and fairly respectful of the culture of civil liberties that Canada, uh, you know, now stands for. So I think you do make a good point. Um, and in fact, you know, at the time that the charter was, uh, was, was entrenched in the, in the Constitution after patriation, the defenders of Section 33, uh, even Lougheed and Blakeney, you know, said, look, the idea is that this is going to be used only in the most extreme circumstances, you know, only in the most, you know, appropriate circumstances, in only in the most measured way. But the problem, of course, is there's nothing in the document that is in the charter itself that says, you know, that places any boundaries or any preconditions for when it can be invoked. And certainly Ford's use of it uh, on this occasion, um, and certainly his threat to use it the last time around in 2018, when he just, you know, arbitrarily decided to cut Toronto City Council in half, by the way, already after the municipal election had had actually been underway, when the, the campaigning actually had begun, you know that was clearly an example of uh, of a use of the clause that nobody, even the most ardent defenders of the uh, of this of, of Section Thirty Three, would have you know would have thought appropriate or permissible. And yet, you know, there you have it. it, it and my view is, you know. I don't want to rely on the good faith or on the discretion of anybody uh, to, to, or, you know, the self-restraint, if you will, of, of governments uh, to use it only appropriately. The fact is, it's in the constitutional toolkit, if you will, uh, and as long as it's there, it could be used. You know, it's a, yeah. you know, use it or lose it. There's other instances of constitutional provisions that haven't been used for generations, and the view is that because of that, they haven't been used, uh, such as, for example, the power of disallowance, the federal power of disallowance of you know provincial laws. Uh, because they haven't been used, there's a constitutional convention that e- that is evolved to say, well, I guess it's you know by convention, it's not you know proper or constitutional to use it. So my, my view is, if it's there, it's going to be used. And my grievance is not principally with the people who use it overzealously, although we should be challenging that, obviously. My view is it shouldn't be there at all. There's no need for it to be there. If the government thinks that, uh, that a limitation of rights and freedoms is necessary, appropriate, there's a substantial pressing concern, there's a matter of national urgency, there's an emergency in the country, there are a lot of ways to get there and to address those without having to suspend the operation of the charter, you know, and I don't want to see this as an East versus West issue because although it was the Western premiers who, you know, raised the, uh, who who put section 33 on the table back in 1981, uh, when the, when the charter was being negotiated and patriation was being negotiated, the fact of the matter is, um, you know, Quebec is the province that's used it the most and, and I don't blame them for using it. It's there. Um, it, it, but it shouldn't be, and it needn't be. And in my view, it's not a matter of sort of democracy versus the elites, the appointed, unelected elites. Not at all. That is just such a, a, a kind of cheap, uh, you know, rhetorical kind of device or polemical device, rather, 
that that the that the supporters of Section 33 use to justify it. Uh, it doesn't it doesn't fly. Uh, I also recognize, by the way, that my position is very much in the minority in this country. I'm not purporting to speak for (laughs) most people. Uh, Well, I mean, it's yeah, you certainly raise some important issues and maybe it it might not have a champion in government right now. But I think Canadians need to have this conversation. Uh, We'll direct people uh, to a couple of points here. Nationalpost.com, your uh, op-ed on the subject is up today and uh, much more as mentioned at section1.ca. Peterson, great having you with us here today. Thanks so much for joining us. Oh, thanks for having me, Rob. I appreciate it. Likewise. That is uh, Peter Biro. He is founder of Section1.ca, editor of the book Constitutional Democracy Under Stress. Has a piece up at the uh, National Post uh, website today saying Section 33 needs to go. He's right. It's it's an uphill battle. I mean, first of all, you have the obstacle of opening up the, the Constitution at all. Secondly, who in government is going to champion this? The federal government doesn't want to do this because probably the angriest province would be Quebec. I don't think the provincial governments really want to go down this path because that's something they probably like to keep in their back pocket in case they need it at some point. But should it exist? The Americans don't have anything like that in their constitution. You spell out, these are the rights that citizens have. And so when governments are passing laws, you need to respect those rights. Don't infringe on those rights because if you do, the courts are going to call you out on that. But there's this escape hatch built into Canada's charter that, as our guest points out, was obviously and directly a result of all of that political horse trading, you know, 40 years ago. Some important issues I want to address off the top in this hour, and I think at some level this definitely relates to the conversation happening in Canada around reconciliation, right, and building bridges and relationships between Indigenous and non-Indigenous Canadians. It's an interesting coincidence because there's a group called Project Reconciliation, that has been uh, working on acquiring an ownership stake in the Trans Mountain Pipeline Expansion Project. This is an Indigenous-led group. And a lot's been happening on that front. In fact, we've been hearing reports this week that suggest that uh, this group might be close to making an offer very soon here to purchase the project outright. And I think that would have a lot of significance in terms of and I'm not just moving this important project forward, but creating those relationships, creating those opportunities in Indigenous communities. And I think a lot of the conversation has started to focus on this, and it's really important that we do so. So that's where we're seeing some progress. I think obviously, you know, what happened with the Keystone XL pipeline and its demise, I think, you know, a lot of those kinds of opportunities also fell by the wayside. But joining us to talk more about these issues, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, Dale Swampy, who is uh, president of the National Coalition of Chiefs and um, works very uh, closely on many of these important issues. Uh, Dale Swampy, great to have you with us here this afternoon. Welcome to the program. Thanks for having me, Rob. Well, like I said, I think it's, you know, it's an important time in, in, uh, in this country right now, and these uh, issues definitely relate to all of that. I mean, your, your thoughts, first of all, just in terms of you know, where you see the conversation around reconciliation going from here, and how you think it ties into some of these, these issues at hand? Well, you know, I think, I think the government of Canada is trying to do its best to, you know, right the wrongs that uh, uh, they feel that uh, has happened with the First Nations and, and um across Canada with the residential school system and so forth. But I think really real reconciliation talks about what the chiefs really want across this country, which is long-term revenue sharing agreements with uh, with the natural resource industry. And what can, what that can translate into is <clears throat> something, um, you know, really tangible that the government can do, and that is follow their own 
Liberal Government uh, Royal Commission study in 1996 on Indigenous peoples and their recommendations that were made then. And one of the top recommendations was that uh, they give 30% of all the lands and resources uh, to the First Nations that the government owns. And you, you know as well as I do, the government owns, federal government owns 90% of Canada. Yeah. You know, and I really think that um, the, uh, the the legal system that's been created around First Nations was created, in fact, to protect treaty rights and to protect uh, communities, um, you know, uh, First Nations' right to uh, own lands and resources that they owned in millennia before uh, before the white man came. And I think we've kind of lost that sort of... Uh, um, goal because we were too tied on getting handouts and getting uh, you know court decisions that uh, produce settlements and so forth those are short-term remedies you know to a long-term problem and the only long-term solution is to to give us the natural resources that that uh, we've always wanted for the past 70 years Absolutely. Let's talk about what's happening on the Trans Mountain Pipeline project because this, there's been a project reconciliation that's been working on this. And we've got some other groups that, that are getting involved in the conversation, the Western Indigenous Pipeline uh, group as well. So what, what can you tell us about where things stand here on, on the Trans Mountain Pipeline? Well, the National Coalition of Chiefs has always been a uh, group that's spreading the message to other chiefs that uh, forming a coalition and negotiating with the government on major projects is the model to follow. You have more influence, you have more ability to be able to make, um, you know, across the board, across, you know, the corridor decisions rather than dealing one-on-one. You get more benefits, you get more opportunities. And I think the Western Indigenous Pipeline Group and their signing with Pembina, for example, is a sign that, um, you know, they are serious about this and and um, a, a large major player in the oil and gas industry and the pipeline industry like Pemina uh, believes that and believes that they can move forward with ownership of the, you know, TMX pipeline. I think that's that's going to be the uh, group that to watch. Chief Michael Labardet is uh, the chairman of the group. He is um, the chief of Whispering Pines First Nation, the First Nation on which the pipe actually crosses their land. So he's uh, directly impacted by that. And he, he was at a gathering that he announced uh, way back in 2019 that had 72 chiefs in there listening to uh, his proposal. So I think he's, I think he's really doing something solid, and I think it's going to happen. So are these separate bids, the, the Project Reconciliation and the Western Indigenous Pipeline Group? That's correct, yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, just to clarify that. So certainly the, the prospects seem very real then that we could have outright in Indigenous ownership of this project. Well, it's, it's not something new. Mm-hmm. I worked for Northern Gateway for some nine years, and when we were on a project, we offered uh, free, you know, um, gifted uh, equity in the project, and some 10%. Uh, by the time we had 31 of the 40 communities on a corridor signed, they, they, they were promised to own one-third of the pipeline. $2 billion worth of uh, benefits over 30 years, including a promise from the uh, owners group, which included nine producers and Enbridge as the operator, that they would hire a First Nation person from B.C. to manage the company as a CEO within five years of operation. So that that was a real commitment by the industry to, to First Nations. And they, they knew that long-term agreements were something that they should have been doing uh, way back in the 70s. 
Yeah, absolutely. And so, you know, I think, you know, the industry's belatedly come around to appreciating the, the importance of all of this. You know, like, I mean, you know, from, from a taxpayer's perspective, obviously it's important that we, we find a buyer for this project. But we look at the other kinds of opportunities this sort of a, an arrangement can present. Why, from your perspective, you know, is, is there the, the value in this kind of an arrangement? What sort of doors and opportunities does, does this open and create? Well, I think it opens a lot of doors. Uh, first of all, it expands the capacity of the oil industry in Alberta to grow and to have access to uh, transportation of its product. And in that respect, it opens up opportunities for a lot of oil and gas industry workers to get rehired. In 2016, for example, we had 12,000 self-identified Indigenous workers in the oil and gas business. Now, in 2021, that has increased, you know, to 14,000 self-identified Indigenous workers in the oil and gas industry. And in a time when a lot of oil and gas industry workers are losing their jobs, we're getting First Nation people hired a lot more. And it's because of the ESG guidelines that have been incorporated in a lot of the engagement and consultation strategies that these corporations follow that gives us an ability to be able to get jobs that we couldn't get in the past. So I think that by owning Trans Mountain, it's going to expand our ability to book both get jobs, you know, in the pipeline industry, as well as with Pamina, as well as with uh, the producers who rely on TMX as a transportation uh, vehicle for their product. So I think it's just going to do a lot, a lot more for First Nations than it's ever done, than the industry has ever done in the past, you know, 70 years. It's interesting, too. We've spoken before about uh, the U.N. Declaration for the Rights of Indigenous People, and it's it's a, a concept that the Liberal government has embraced. And on the one hand, you know, the idea of communities to be able to say no to projects, that, that gets focused on a lot. But one of the points you've raised before is about, you know, does this take away uh, communities' rights to say yes to projects? Where, where are we at with uh, UNDRIP, and uh, what are your concerns still at this point? Well, I mean, I think it's an empty promise on reconciliation. I think it's a, you know, just a cop out for the federal government to put in ambiguous legislation like this and cause a lot of <clears throat> problems for both industry and for First Nations in order to get, you know, projects off the ground and employment going. I think real reconciliation is what we talked about in the uh, in the 1996 recommendations by the uh, Royal Commission. That is real reconciliation and when it comes down to it you know UNDRIP was developed by um, you know Chief uh, Willie Littlechild and um, he was always fighting for um, First Nation rights treaty rights and so forth and that that was all about getting land title to land and resources and really what we need is clear and outright ownership of resources then you won't be paying $20 billion to us uh, annually for social welfare programs because we can't get work. I mean, we'll be developing these natural resource industry projects on our own, just like the 13 bills of Congress did for the Alaskan First Nations back in 1971. Millions and millions, millions of acres of land and resources were given to these tribes, and none of them, none of them to this day ever sold one, one acre of those lands. They protected it. They were the ones that were the, the environmental protectors of their of their state, you know, of their land, you know. And so it's it's not like it's a new concept. It's been done before. Yeah, absolutely. Well, much more at uh, coalitionofchiefs.ca. We'll leave it there for now. Uh, Dale Swampy, thanks so much for making some time for us here today. I look forward to talking again. Thank you. All the best. Uh, that is Dale Swampy. He is president of the National Coalition of Chiefs, coalitionofchiefs.ca. So some important points, I think, in, in how we frame 
you know, the conversations around energy development alongside indigenous rights and reconciliation. And I think there are some who have really tried to portray this as, you know, Canada trying to impose these projects on indigenous communities and uh, these indigenous communities being universally opposed to these projects. And that, that's not the case at all. And I think even just shifting that conversation around the Trans Mountain Pipeline would really go a long way in helping Canadians maybe see it in a different light. So it's good to hear. In fact, now we've got, as, uh, as he mentioned, so there's the original group Project Reconciliation that's been working on purchasing the pipeline. And that is what they are now seeking at this point, to purchase it outright. We've now got uh, this new group, Chinook Pathways, which resulted from the partnership that was announced between the Western Indigenous Pipeline Group and the Pembina Pipeline Corporation. So they are looking to buy the Trans Mountain Pipeline project. So I think that bodes well for finding a buyer and certainly the fact that the government owns this pipeline, we do not want to be that or to have that as, as the permanent solution here. Maybe that was necessary to save it. But ideally, we want to find a buyer. So here's two potentially uh, that may end up fighting each other over this, right? Trying to outbid one another or, or whatever ends up happening. So I think that that bodes well for the government unloading this pipeline. But I just think in terms of the the opportunities, the jobs, this creates the potential for that sort of lasting prosperity. That's a real win-win, isn't it? Well, some of the conversations we've had recently about Banff have uh, been focused on some of the struggles that the community had. I mean, certainly, you know, the height of the third wave of COVID here in Alberta, Banff was one of the hardest hit communities. You know, similar to what we saw maybe in, in Whistler and, and other similar kinds of resort communities where you got a, a lot of young people who are working in town and, and maybe living in close quarters. So for whatever reason, I mean, you know, Banff definitely was was hit hard. The good news is that BAMP has really turned a corner in a dramatic way. It's, I suppose it's emblematic of what we've been seeing in, in terms of trends throughout Alberta. Uh, but as we head into the summer month, and I know a lot of people's thoughts turn to going to BAMP, going to the mountains. I, I think this all bodes well. So joining us to talk a bit about you know, how BAMP is positioned now heading into the summer, very pleased to welcome back to the program uh, the town's mayor. Karen Sorensen joins us uh, here this afternoon. Mayor Sorensen, great to have you back with us. Welcome to the program. Thanks so much, and thanks for having me back. Yeah, so, I mean, we, we spoke, you know, I mean, not too long ago, and obviously, you know, kind of at the, at the height of things in Banff, obviously it was a tough situation there and in some other communities, but um, I guess good to report that, that things have definitely taken a big turn for the better. Yeah, we really want to thank uh, all Albertans uh, for rescheduling their travel plans, respecting our request to postpone any travel to the area for a while. But we are now ready and happy and willing to welcome uh, our neighbours and and those of you who believe Banff is your backyard, because it is. And um, we're just happy to welcome everybody back. So talk a bit about how, you know, we, we turn things around. I think overall things have been moving in the right direction across Alberta, but things got pretty acute in Banff, obviously, with, you know, the number of cases. So one of the zones that the Alberta government tried to focus on to, to get vaccines into. So what do you attribute the, the turnaround to? Well, uh, we definitely have had a, a, 
a fast and a, a quick uh, recovery from our last spike. So as you commented, we did spike quite high. Uh, we in Fort McMurray were in the most serious situations within the province. Um, so that is the reason that we sent that really heart-wrenching request to ask Albertans to please delay travel. Uh, and then what was happening at that time, Alberta Health Services were uh, really proactive with our community. They brought in additional testing uh, and testing sites so that we could get as many people tested as possible in a short time and also equally and perhaps maybe even more importantly uh, brought in vaccination centers for us specifically in Banff. We now have about 84-85% of our population in Banff vaccinated with first dose and we have every reason to believe that our residents will be as anxious to get their second dose so that we really can you know, save our summer here and invite people back and not only feel safe ourselves, but make sure that our visitors know they're safe in our community. Well, it's interesting. I mean, yeah, we, we've certainly uh, stepped up our game on the vaccine side of things, and the government's really tried to, I think, make them widely available. So for folks in BAV, are there ample opportunities then through clinics or pharmacies to, to get a, a vaccine right there in town? Yes, absolutely. So again, initially, Alberta Health Services came in with a vaccination center, which we set up at our recreation center in town at the Fenlands. But currently, um, I think all of our pharmacies and a couple of our doctor's offices are offering vaccinations as they are in Canmore. And we work pretty closely with the town of Canmore. So I, for instance, got my second dose in Canmore. Uh, However, we have had confirmation that Alberta Health Services will be putting another vaccination clinic uh, directly into Banff, operating out of the Fenlands again, I believe, in early July. So that will really help us get uh, all of our residents uh, with that uh, very necessary second dose. So what, what are you seeing right now? I don't know if you have the, the most up-to-date numbers, but in terms of new cases, the overall case count, last I've seen, it's, it's quite low in Banff. What, uh, what are the latest numbers you have? Yeah, we're sitting with three active cases in Banff, oh, wow. and that the Banff area, that includes Lake Louise, and we've only seen two new cases in the last, um, I think, couple of weeks. So um, we're staying very stable. We haven't seen that mag- magic zero yet, but the number is significantly low, and very, as I said, two new cases in the last, um, last couple of weeks. So that's also very good news that we seem to have stopped the community spread. Absolutely. So what does it mean then in terms of, you know, the rules that are in place in Banff? Obviously, provincial rules are are in place right across the province, but I know Banff has had its own specific pandemic rules in place. So where do things stand there? So the one thing that Banff has done differently than the province, for the most part, we are following provincial regulations. But the one thing that we have done differently is we have had an outdoor mask bylaw in place in our downtown core. That is currently still in place. Uh, We are watching. There was some discussion about the mask bylaw yesterday at council. uh, But right now we're watching the province. We think by the time we have our next council meeting at the end of June, we'll have a much better idea of what the province's plans are for the mask bylaw. We, of course, follow the province in terms of having an indoor mask bylaw in all public places, but we do have this additional mask bylaw outdoors. And for now, at this point, both those are still in place, as I said, provincially mandated, but the one outdoors is the Town of Banff bylaw. So, as I said, still in place today, and and, uh, we'll we'll discuss it further on on June 28th. Um, You know, we're asking people when they come to continue to plan ahead of time, make sure you book your hotels, and if you can make reservations at your preferred restaurants and and all of your activities. Um, We're asking people to, you know, continue to sanitize and social distance. Um, We have closed uh, Banff Avenue to vehicular traffic again, and so that allows people to be in a pedestrian zone where social distancing is much easier, and that is the intent of that space. All right, so as people might be thinking to this weekend, you know, later this month into the summer, 
people are welcome back in BAMP then. Yes, absolutely. And we are excited to, you know, have you back and we are doing everything we can to make it the destination uh, safe, accessible and have our visitors feel safe. As I mentioned, the pedestrian zone on um, the main street. Another thing we've added this summer to that is a valet bike, uh, a valet bike storage area so that if you're on your bike and you want to stop downtown and have lunch or go shopping, you can uh, secure your bike with a valet. No fee. Uh, you can just drop your bike off there and we'll look after your bike for you while you um, while you shop or, or have something to eat. And I should also mention um, Banff Avenue is one part of our downtown. It connects with two perpendicular streets that also have patios and outdoor seatings. But for this last year, Bear Street uh, has been under a big reconstruction, and we are delighted that that will be completed in the middle of July. So Bear Street is open now, and all the shops and the restaurants are open, but it is still under construction. Uh, but we are um, transforming that street into a pedestrian-friendly commercial hub. So I think people will be really excited to see Bear Street and what we've done with it. Eighty trees have been planted. There's great big boulders everywhere so people can sit there. Um, cars are allowed, but you will see very quickly that a car would have to travel at a very, very very reduced speed Mm -hmm. and and, uh, RVs and buses won't be on that road at all. Yeah, and that'll be an interesting conversation going forward, I suspect. I mean, that that whole experience of having that as a pedestrian area, these these busy roads, and having restaurants being able to sort of expand their patios and the sidewalks and streets. If if people like that and get used to it, I mean, does conversation shift to maybe making that something more permanent? Well, it's definitely been talked about, but, you know, from my perspective, we have a real challenge. You know, we are a small community, and there's an awful lot of vehicles that come to this community, and we can't build out. We can't build a ring road. Um, We cannot just build large parking structures uh, out into the park. And so with Banff Avenue being our main thoroughfare, and we see anywhere from 20 to 30,000 plus vehicles a day coming and going into the town of Banff in the busy months, they need to go somewhere <laughs> and they need to get across the bridge um, and down Banff Avenue to a number of attractions and hotels on that side. So it's mm-hmm. a bit challenging because if we take vehicles off Banff Avenue, then they need to go somewhere else to get to their destination. What we're really working on is getting people to use uh, Rome Transit rather than personal vehicles. And again, I'll make mention for this summer and moving forward, if you do bring a vehicle, if you're in a vehicle, your personal vehicle coming to Banff, please plan to park at the Banff uh, train station. Um, Again, you know, small town, parking's in high demand, and we do have this 500-stall parking lot at our train station. Uh, It's an easy eight-minute walk into the downtown core, and or on weekends, we are actually offering free shuttles from there as well. And if you park there, you can stay there for nine hours, um, free, <laughs> and we're encouraging people to, to do that and keep their vehicles out of the downtown core. We will be introducing uh, visitor pay parking uh, coming up in the next few weeks, so once um, that comes into play, you and I may have another conversation. Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, more details on all of that uh, at uh, Banff.ca, but uh, we'll leave it there for now. Mayor Sorensen, thanks for joining us here today. Appreciate it. Thanks. Very nice chatting with you again. All right. Likewise. All the best. There you go. That's uh, Karen Sorensen, uh, mayor of the town of Banff. So, uh, yeah, they were not too long ago telling folks, please stay home. Let us get this situation under control. They definitely have. As you're well aware, we are into stage two of Alberta's reopening plan. It's possible that maybe July 1st or 2nd, we'll move into stage three. 
and uh, pretty much be done with all provincial health restrictions. I think for younger people, it's a real opportunity uh, going into the summer months to get them back to a sense of normalcy. I mean, school this year has been very disruptive, obviously. I mean, this whole pandemic has been really tough on kids. A group of pediatricians uh, are calling on the province to emphasize, to prioritize recreational activities for children in reopening plans. You know, the, the need for physical activity, the need for mental well-being. This stuff is really important. And pedi- pediatricians have obviously been seeing, you know, firsthand the impacts of all of this on kids. Joining us to talk more about all this, very pleased to welcome to the program here this afternoon, uh, Calgary pediatrician Dr. Renee Farrell joins us on the line here this afternoon. Dr. Farrell, thanks for joining us. Welcome to the program. Yeah. Great. Thanks for inviting me. I appreciate it. Yeah, well, let's talk about why, you know, it's important to to call attention to this and why the province, in your view, really needs to ensure that this is and remains a priority. Yeah, I was really heartened to see that our province um, in the reopening strategy prioritized youth activities, um, including them in Phase 2B, and that we were able to reopen schools um, during uh, the reopening phase quite early. Um, we know that youth, um, this pandemic has been going on now for 16 months um, and that youth are experiencing significant consequences from the social isolation associated with the, um, the pandemic restrictions, um, specifically when we look at youth, mental, youth and children's mental health. And how have we seen that manifest? I mean, what have you been dealing with uh, you know, over the last year and a bit? Yeah, so over the last year, I mean, when we look at emergency room visits, we've seen a 100% increase in emergency room visits uh, for mental health conditions um, presenting um, to us. We also see that younger individuals are presenting with mental health uh, conditions um, and that this is going to be long-term effects of the pandemic that we are only starting to really fully be able to measure and assess. Um, we see that our mental health resources were already struggling to manage with um, youth and children's mental health concerns. And with this additional number of presenting, we just don't have the resources to manage um, and help these youth. So how does, you know, socializing and, and routine and in particular, you know, recreational activities, how does, how does that all benefit when it comes to kids? know that children really succeed when they have routines, right? When they know exactly what they're going to be doing um, um, in a daily scheduled way. Socialization is important not only for their emotional development, um, uh, but also for their their socialization skills. We, and we can look at that across the age span, not only in teenagers, but in young younger children as well. Um, and then when we think about physical, you know, sports, um, as a way for children to engage in physical activity. We know that physical activity helps um, children and youth in terms of their mental health. Right. And I mean, especially when it comes to outdoor activities, you know, I mean, obviously we're getting into a much better position, you know, with regard to, to the virus and community levels of infection. But, you know, when it comes to outdoor sports and outdoor physical activities, like that, that risk is really minimal, right? So we've got all the benefits of, of recreational activity, but there's not a lot of risk, is there? Well, I think what we're, you know, in the current phase, what we understand is that Right now, there is definitely less risk from being outdoors um, in terms of COVID-19. So that is one of the beneficial ways we can continue to be um, engaging in socialization, at least right now, especially now that we're seeing community transmission decrease as well. Um, So, yes, I would say that the risk is um, definitely decreased outdoors. So we should maximize those opportunities for youth, especially while we're, you know, seeing community transmission decrease. 
So are we doing enough right now? I mean, you mentioned uh, that, that we have made outdoor sports and activities a priority in, in mm-hmm. stage two. Are, are we in a good position or is there more the Alberta government could be doing right now? You know, I think they've done quite a bit and I'm glad that, you know, in phase two they've been prioritized. I think when we pediatricians look at specifically activities, we just hope that we can continue along this path. Um, and keep these activities open. And if, you know, things we have some setbacks related to COVID-19 and more restrictions are required, that our government continue to prioritize um, youth activities, school, um, and sports in camp. And in terms of, you know, if if there are issues where, you know, parents do need to, to get kids in to see pediatricians, I mean, are mm-hmm. we... Are we- is it easier right now? I know there's been all kinds of challenges in, in getting, you know, face-to-face visits with doctors and trying mm-hmm. to struggle with all of the pandemic restrictions, just in terms of being able to see patients, treat patients. Where are we at with that? You know, when I think about my pediatric group, I think that we are seeing more younger people more, and in general more mental health presentations. And these, these pediatricians have quite a... Um, a long wait list for some of these youth yeah. we've seen in, in our clinic. Um, and we, you know, we were just talking about this in our, in our clinic about how um, you know, these, when mental health concerns present, they, they do need to be addressed sometimes in, you know, quite quickly, but we just don't have the um, availability to have it. And we have a shortage of um, child adolescent psychiatrists in our, um, in our province right now to even help address that concern. So a lot of it is falling to family doctors and pediatricians to address at the at the um, initial level uh, and manage those mental health concerns. Um, and one of the challenges that the pediatricians and family doctors face is just having resources to help navigate um, navigate this patient population to provide them with the access to the help that they need. Absolutely. Well, let's hope things keep trending in the right direction. Uh, we'll leave it there for now. Dr. Farrell, appreciate you joining us here this afternoon. Thanks for this. Yeah, thank you very much. Bye-bye. All right, that's uh, Calgary pediatrician Dr. Brene Farrell. A pretty group of uh, pediatricians uh, in conjunction as well with uh, Swim Alberta, the Alberta Camping Association, and other groups saying, let's make this a priority, right? Kids need this. We're in a position now where we can really safely offer these kinds of activities. So let's continue to make it a priority because kids need this. And that's, that's definitely the case. Thanks for downloading and listening to the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review for free at Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or wherever you find your podcast. You can also find me on Twitter at Rob Breckenridge. You can email me, rob at 770chqr.com. Talk to you next time. Afternoons with Rob Breckenridge, starting at 1230 on News Talk 770 Calgary.